Well, folks, welcome to the party. And I need you to do me a favor. I need you to announce the title of our series to your neighbor and do some with enthusiasm. Say, you can do this. Come on, tell your neighbor, you can do this. That's right. I believe every single one of us has the opportunity to make the most of the life Jesus died to give us. And I am thrilled that you would join us uh, for this conversation, this collection of talks in this series in which myself and mine and Kristen's personal therapist, Hug McWilliams, are sitting down and we're talking about life and we're combining the biblical with the clinical. And already we're hearing stories of how beneficial and impactful this content has been. And I wanna encourage you, take these conversations home with you, have discussions with your family and consider joining a group because I'm convinced these are conversations every single one of us needs to have. Well, that being said, here is week three of You Can Do This. It is hard to grow and we don't, frankly, I don't think we value it, not as a culture necessarily, maybe never in history, in pockets probably, but because it is a hard task. I'm older now, quite a bit, and I find myself thinking that every now and then I think, I should have arrived by now. Hmm. I should finally get a diploma, somebody should, mark out that I've achieved something, right? Yeah. Well, my age is not something I can do anything about, so it's not my fault. And then uh, we just moved a couple of years ago, a major move for us from living in a suburban big cities to a rural area. We're, we're off the grid so much, we don't have cell service where we live. Yeah. Which, fun fact, you and I have that in common in that we are both from Colorado, uh, and we have a strong affinity for yeah, the mountains. There you go, yeah. there you go. But now you're somewhere in a canyon, people can't find you. Right, <laughs> right, well, you know, I was telling somebody today, I'm 40 minutes from the nearest store, right? Hmm. So you have to plan differently, you have to think different. So I'm in the midst of transition, which I've taught other people about for a long time, yeah. and that's great, but I have to take my own medicine, and I keep thinking it'll go away, and it doesn't go away fast, it takes, Transition takes a long time. Change, not so much. You can change a whole lot in a hurry, but the actual transitional part of it takes a long time. And so I'm right like in the middle. Like meddle on that a little bit. Like create that distinction between transition and change. Well, uh, we changed. Our actual move took two days, maybe, and three trucks and lots of people, and it was done, hmm. right? And so we moved all our stuff and you know, it actually took our life from a city to the mountains. Yeah. Minnesota to Indiana. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, but then the transition starts. Yeah. And I think the transition is the upsetting part. It's the tumultuous part. Where did I put this and in what box is that? And that kind of simple stuff, maybe. But then pretty soon after you've been there a couple of years, you think, well, maybe this should be less and it doesn't get less. It winds up continuing, right? And, but the point I want to try to make is, when all is said and done, uh, I'm amazed at how strong the learning curve is yeah. in this process. Should be easier, or maybe I should be able to pay for more of it. And I did pay for some of this move. This first move I've ever had paid for extra help, yeah. and I was grateful I could. And 
grateful for it. But the point is you can't, you can't exclude yourself from the transitional process. It's just simply a process that you have to go through. And I think we don't want to take that time. So we shortcut that process. And when you do, you shortcut your development, I'm pretty sure. So I have to stay open and lean into it and say, I don't like this. This isn't as much fun as I want it to be. I wish it was over in some ways, but every piece of it that I lean into, I learn about, I learn about me. I learn about my relationships and it, it just keeps getting richer if I'll let it. Yeah. Well, I I love that distinction between transition and change. And from your perspective, would you say the majority of people don't transition well? Yes. And I would, I would say change is an ongoing process. So, and it's inevitable, right? And, and concomitant with all change comes grief. Now we don't usually identify it because a lot of change is uh, upward mobile or acquiring new things or that kind of thing. Some change is of course heinous like having cancer or some such thing, but uh, a lot of change is something that we anticipate going forward. So we don't think of it as needing grief to attach to it. So part of transition is letting go of things that you're not going to need on this part of the trip. Uh, I call it offloading the outworn, but that's just my phrase. And what it means to me is it's like in scripture, it talks about wheat's development. It takes chaff for wheat to fully develop. Mm. But at the end of the wheat's development, chaff is worthless, but it's necessary for the growth of of the wheat. So. Yeah. So if I don't offload that, then I'm carrying all the chaff along with me. And I think what transition is for is for me to begin to grind finer this change that I'm going through. Yeah. And uh, I was just talking to a friend of mine whose child is getting ready to go to college and she's grieving the loss of this child and afraid for him and doesn't really want him to leave. And I yeah. said, you've worked your whole life to launch this kid. Why aren't you celebrating? Well, that's a that's transitional process to to learn how to celebrate that movement rather than to hang on to it. Yeah. And pretty soon, I think we're dragging copious amounts of outworn stuff that's no longer necessary. It was necessary to keep the kid out of the street at this point, but yeah. you don't have to control his life at this point. You should celebrate him, and you should. Put yourself, try to put yourself in his place and say, what would I want my parents to do as they launched me? Mm. You know, go, go. Life can't but hurt you, but it's okay. I'll still be here. You know, Mm. take the risk, go for it in some way. So transition uh, is to help us not accumulate a bunch of past that's no longer useful. So you, you said just a minute ago, I didn't, I wasn't caught up in circumstance and situation. The reason is because it's not the circumstance or the situation that's the key, it's what you think it means and Mm -hmm. how it impacted you and what you saw of it. So I'm interested in how you process that inside. Well, transition work is the process of this developmental challenge. Well, Hud, let's talk about 
conflict. You know, scripture says we are charged with the, the message of reconciliation, which requires, I mean, leaning into the process, forgiveness, communication, all, all those relational dynamics. And one thing I've heard you share on before is the difference between fighting and wrestling and how this is key in approaching conflict. Well, uh, we get a message, like you've implied, that conflict is bad and uh, it shouldn't exist and we should get rid of it. And uh, if you're really good, you know, you'll people make a living on conflict resolution in our world. But uh, I think just understanding the dynamic helps. Uh, everybody, I believe, uh, are, has na the natural ability to fight. Yeah. I don't think you have to work at it. I just think it comes, right? And all you have to do is watch kids playing yeah. and trying to navigate their their world as little children even, you know. Even before they, even when they're doing parallel play, they're still trying to win in some way. And so <clears throat> I think about it this way, and this has just been helpful for me. And so thanks for letting me talk about it. Uh, I'd put fighting here. And I would say there are two things about fighting that help identify it. One is that there is, there are no rules in fighting and there are no time limit. So, so what that means is that if I'm in a fight with you, yeah. uh, there aren't any boundaries to it. I can, I can fight anytime. I can fight any way. I can use a lead pipe. I can use sarcasm. I can use passive aggressive behavior I can use, you know, whatever. And there's no time limit. Hmm. So you, you can be walking down the hall and I can trip you, you know, I can, I can blindside you, I can do all the, those kind of things. And the purpose of fighting is to win. Yeah. Uh, and I can't emphasize that enough because that's a very Western world, uh, American uh, <clears throat> capitalistic idea. Uh, winning, winning at all costs. In fact, I wrote a little article about that, you know, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, I think was what Lombardi said, you know, in the NFL. And I get that, I get the competitive thing. Don't be bashing my Packers. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Tread lightly. Cheeseheads, unite, whatever. Uh, so winning and losing has an interesting dynamic relationally. Yeah. Anytime you lose, you you remember it, and there's a teeny bit of bitterness, hmm. uh, you know, dropped into your soul in a sense. Uh, and I think it's the it's it's the mistake we make because this is this is primitive, underdeveloped, undeveloped, if you will, people, maldeveloped in some way. Uh, but everybody fights, yeah. and they fight with whatever they have. So. Uh, if you feel you're weaker, I worked with a whole bunch of domestic abuse victims for five or eight years, kind of specialized in that a little bit. And uh, people that are victims of domestic abuse, it's complicated, but also what you find is they fight in a different way. And But they, they're fighting to win, to survive maybe is language you would use, but there's no rules and no time limit. And it's, and a lot of people get stuck there. Yeah. And when a relationship gets stuck there, it's just crazy. The biblical message is we should learn how to wrestle. 
And there's a couple reasons to think about this in this way. The famous story is Jacob's story. Yeah. Jacob being kind of a goofy guy. He was, I call him a used car salesman. No offense to all the used car salesmen that are listening to this. But uh, I don't think he ever did anything straight. Mm. Uh, he was a con man. He was a chiseler, a cheat, uh, you know, a deceiver was part of what his name means, or a supplanter, or there's a lot of ways you can define his name. But Jacob just was a mess, absolute mess. And I don't know who was worse, Jacob or his mother, actually, right. the beginning of that story. <laughs> Nevertheless, he gets to this one place by this brook, and he has this wrestling match with this angel. Mm. Well, the angel apparently is Jesus himself. <laughs> so I think what happened was Jesus actually blessed Jacob by keeping him from running because every time Jacob did a deal, he ran away from it. He, you know, if you sell a car that doesn't have an engine in it and the person discovers it doesn't have an engine in it, they're going to yeah. bring it back. And if you, if you don't want to be caught, you have to run away so yeah. they can't catch you. So that's the whole, whole deal. The other fascinating thing about that story is it changed, they changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And the name Israel in Hebrew means people who wrestle with God, God wrestlers. So the Israelite nation was to be a nation that wrestled with God. Now, wrestling is a contact sport. <laughs> you, you, every fiber of your being is involved in wrestling and, and Greco-Roman wrestling or American interscholastic or intercollegiate wrestling. Uh, it's, it's a very short sport it lasts only nine minutes and yeah. three three minute periods and that kind of stuff so wrestling has all this stuff to it and this is what makes it qualitatively and quantitatively different than fighting there is a uh there are a bunch of rules so to contrast it with this and there's a time limit and there is a referee and there is a uh uniform and it's uh, done on a mat, so there's a place for it. And there is a, uh, there's an equality to it. You have to be equally matched in terms of weight, and equally matched in terms of skill level, hopefully, and, and talent. Would you, would you say kind of a ready opponent? Yeah. Because in a fight, you can ambush somebody, but in healthy conflict, it's... You're facing them directly. You're facing a ready opponent. In the light, in the middle of the mat. Right. And you go off the mat, they pull you back on. You know, I mean, it's got all this stuff to it. So you can go on. You can even list more of these. In a fight, you can, you can attack somebody in the stands. Here, you have to wait until the mat's rolled out. Yeah. Right? So there's all of this containment is the word I would use. So a wrestling match is a containment. Marriage ought to be a primary wrestling match. Actually, here we go. Good sex is a wrestling match. <laughs> it's... It's unpredictable in some ways, and it's it's uh, yeah, it's got a novelness to it, and it's but it's a contact sport, and it's it takes energy, and it should involve you fully, and it's part of how God made us, and and He wants us to celebrate in that way, and I think too often we diminish all of this and try to contain it and control it in a different way, and so uh, wrestling is this great idea, but he. It comes, you come away from a wrestling match in a win-win proposition. 
And by that, when you come off the mat, you know how you stacked up in terms of your being in shape and your skill level against this opponent mm. uh, at this moment. So nobody loses ultimately in this deal. Here, you keep score in such a way that it's pretty devastating mm. when people lose. And so, and this is an individual sport, but it's done as in a team. So I, you just have all these dimensions to it. Yeah. Uh, if I could teach this to a couple, uh, they'll realize they can't just spontaneously deal with an issue. They have to deliberately yeah. get ready, prepare, et cetera. So I, I use this quick illustration. Uh, in order to write a 20-minute dialogue for a TV show, uh, there was a TV show that was a, a comedy, and it had three characteristics of the writing, and the writing was it had to be funny, it had to be uh, sensitive psychologically, sound psychologically, and it had to be uh, racially sound. And he had, there were three groups of people that actually wrote the funny part and rewrote the psychological part and rewrote the racial part, the sociological part. Uh, and the author of the article said, how long does it, how many clock hours, man hours does it take if you had eight or seven or eight people in each of those groups uh, to write this one 20 minute dialogue and people guess all kinds of stuff and I wanted to beat the system and so I said 300 hours and the guy said no the average is a thousand hours to write that one script wow. we watched the script in the show and it looks like perfection it just rolls so sweetly the, the each line is said clearly it fits it has all that to it but they spent a thousand hours preparation so I would ask you when was the last time you spent a thousand hours getting ready for a conversation with Kristen. <laughs> yeah. You know, it would change the conversation if you spent that, right? You and I spent some time trying to shape some of this today. Uh, why? In preparation for it. So it's just not random. Yeah. Uh, even though that. But even that in the preparation, like, you know, a wrestler who is preparing for a fight spends majority of their time focusing on themselves. Getting in shape. That's right. Understanding what they, what their gifts are and how they wrestle, etc. Yeah, you know where I think sometimes when people approach conflict, they prepare by stacking ammunition. Uh, yeah, I'm going into it guns blazing, and I, I think sometimes it's it's beating your opponent to the punch, you know, and doing the hard work and owning. Hey, where where do you come up short in this situation? If, if you win in a conflict in a, in a relationship, the relationship always takes the hit. Yeah. So winning a fight means the relationship loses. Wrestling means that the relationship wins. Uh, that's, what the, that's the major difference. And so mm. when God pronounces Jacob's new name, which is powerful in the Old Testament, only God could rename somebody, uh, that name, God wrestler, Israel, is him inviting them into a wrestling match with him. And you think of all the wrestling matches, you know, Moses, yeah. uh, you're to lead my people out of Egypt. Me, I can't talk. Who made your mouth? I mean, they're just arguing back and forth. We say, okay, you know, I'll let Aaron do it, but you've got to go do it anyway, you know? Yeah. And so they do this back and forth thing or Abraham saying, 
if I can find X number of righteous people in this city, will you save it? Then he keeps going, you know, he says, from five down to, I don't, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but finally it gets down to one or two, you know, and he says, if I can find one, will you save the city, you know? Uh, that's a wrestling match, right? That's a negotiation, that's, a, that's what God wants. He wants us to engage in this relationship with him. I know this is something you and I have talked about and, you know, and I've heard others write about it, speak on it. And I think where I, I'm currently at, where I understand the tension around winning is there's, there's not an issue with achieving greatness. The issue with our obsession with winning is more be, the focus of imposing failure on others, right? And so, there's nothing wrong with wanting to experience the fullness in life and wanting to live out your potential and be a person who's disciplined and, you know, driven in a healthy way, but it's more, is your focus of doing those things to impose failure, to push down others, you know, the, drill down on the issue of this idea of winning and competition and comparison. Because is there any anything redeemable <laughs> about those of us who are super competitive and would like to win? I, I was with a friend of mine who I used to play racquetball with quite a bit, and we were in some social setting, and I mouthed off and said I wasn't very competitive, and he just started laughing. You know, it's just like, you don't, you're not paying attention, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it got me to thinking about competition, and that's where my earlier comment came from. Uh, I think healthy competition is you being challenged in the arena, you challenging yourself, because that's the only thing you can control, really. I can't control the other person. Uh, but I grew up with a coach, uh, some coaches, that wanted to position the other person as an enemy hmm. rather than as a challenger, right? The enemy, I want to beat. Uh, the challenger, I want to take the challenge and see who's, who comes off the field the best, Yeah. right? When, when you are in good competition, you walk off the field a friend. When you're in uh, a battle, uh, you walk off the field with them being an enemy. What would you say control is rooted in? Fear. Fear that I, that it won't turn out, that I can't, predict the outcome, that I'll be taking too big a risk, that, you know, fill in the blank, right? It's fear that comes out of insecurity a lot of times, uh, fear that I can't control the outcome, however you want to label that. Uh, and it's why there's so many statements in scripture about fear. Fear is, what, 350 plus times in scripture yeah. talked about, don't fear, fear not, be not afraid, have no fear. And what do you think scripture's poking on there? You know, that was something that when you and I started connecting and Kristen, you know, you're Kristen's therapist as well, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I was, and I hate to admit this, but I was really resistant to the idea of sitting down with a Christian therapist. Mm. And my, my assumptions, which were wrong, but where I was at at the time was, I don't want someone who's just gonna tell me Bible answers. Like, I feel like from my training, I have that. 
I, like, give me someone who's got the tools, the formula. Give me someone with the clinical techniques here. And I, I was shocked by your ability to weave the biblical and the clinical. And, um, and I really appreciate that about you and, and your ability to like drill down on big concepts that we just, we don't take enough time to think about, you know, and there is this pretty significant emphasis placed on fear. And are, are there things that we're overlooking in the fear conversation? I think so. Uh, part of the way I got to the term disturbance yeah. in the book title is, is a way of looking at the garden message in the first two chapters of Genesis. How God created us, the garden, was he didn't create the garden to be a safe place. He created the garden to where the serpent had access, for instance. And we're forever thinking that, you know, ideally if we get this right, everything will be safe. But there, was, it was, there wasn't safety created in the garden. If you're gonna learn, you've got to disturb things to get there. And that disturbance is something we don't teach very well because it's disturbing. <laughs> Yeah. And who wants to be disturbed all the time? But, the, but actually, if you get used to it, you, you pretty soon are bored if you're not, right? Because the God of the Bible is continually inviting you into something new, into another place, inviting you forward and upward and to the next level of development. Fear and anger and defensiveness, those three things, I don't believe we were prepared for in the garden. We didn't need fear, we didn't need anger, and we didn't need defensiveness. Uh, leaving the garden the way we did by choosing control, knowledge, you know, knowledge is power, over what? Over relationship. We left relationship with God, we left relationship with one another, we left relationship with ourselves, and we left relationship with the earth. And so those four relationships were broken and we started on this journey of being in control. So no wonder we are afraid. But fear and anger are anti-relational emotions. Mm. Here's what I mean by that. When I'm afraid of you, I run away. When I'm fearful of you, I push you away. Yeah. Either way, I add distance to our relationship. So and you can see this everywhere in families, that's and right. corporations. Right, doesn't matter. Neighborhoods, yeah, schools. That's why we keep secrets, that's why uh, you know, one of the biggest computer things going on right now is surveillance and cybersecurity and on and on and on. Why is all that stuff so important? Uh, because we don't do life in the open and we want control. So power is the screaming message in our world in some way, but it's economic power, psychological, social, doesn't matter. It doesn't want you to grow because growing will disturb that culture. Growing will upset things. But if you think about fear, and anger, those two things uh, are, are massive influences in our culture. So let me talk about anger just a minute. Hmm. James 1, I think it's 19 and 20, somewhere in there, says, the anger of man, even though it's spot on, yeah. will not produce the righteousness of God. So I can be, I can be furious at some injustice accurately. And I should be, I should be outraged at evil. Mm. But I don't have the capacity to redeem that. I don't have the capacity to bring about justice. So Paul 
talks in, I think it's Romans 12, he says, vengeance is God's, he will repay. You have to let go of that, let God do the vengeance. Well, look at our movies today. I bet in the last seven or eight years, I've watched at least 30 revenge movies. It's all revenge. <laughs> it is. It's about justice of some kind, you know, and it'll show up in some form or another, but it's just crazy making stuff. But it shows how, how we long for justice, right? And we should. We're made that way. We can see the injustice. Does that longing come with a massive blind spot? Well, Where like, we, like we, we long for others to experience justice while overlooking all of our shortcomings, all of our imperfections, all the things that people are wanting us to experience justice on, you know? Absolutely. So what you say anger is accurate, like if, how do you have accurate anger yet respond with an appropriate kind of, I mean, what's accurate and appropriate? Uh, Paul in Ephesians uh, quotes a psalm. And the quote he uses in Ephesians goes something like this. In your anger, don't sin. Yeah. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And the last line is, don't give Satan a foothold. Okay, don't give him an opportunity. So it has this list kind of. When you're angry, it doesn't, it assumes that you're gonna be angry, so good luck. Yeah. That's gonna be part of life. Every little kid in the world, some of their earliest words besides no, are it's unfair. Hmm. They know it's unfair, and they're usually right. It is unfair, and what do we say to them? Life's Life unfair. unfair. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't resolve that because we know it's not resolvable. And so Paul says, when you're angry or when the anger happens to you, your job is to not sin. So the, he juxtaposes sin with anger. And he basically says, you, because of your anger, even though it may be right, what you have to be careful with is not making it sinful. And then he says, you know, don't, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't give Satan an opportunity. So you follow where Paul got that. Well, he gets it out of Psalms 4, verse 4. And the Hebrew word, which is a, a different kind of word, but it says, an accurate translation is tremble and don't sin. Well, the word tremble describes two feelings, two primary emotions. If you are strong enough angry, you'll shake. And if you're strong enough fearful, you'll shake. Hmm. So he says, tremble, go ahead and have these strong emotions. Same word, don't sin. Interesting. So here comes the order again. You've got these feelings. You should have them, own them, don't deny them, embrace them and don't sin, and then he gives you four more things which are really fascinating. Yeah. Meditate in your heart, on your bed, and be still. So he has four things that are all counterintuitive to what you would want to do with the feelings of strong fear yeah. and strong anger. You wanna act them out in some way. You wanna scream, you wanna bring about justice, you wanna throw a tantrum, you wanna do something. And then he goes on in that Psalm, it's like an eight verse Psalm, and he says, when you do this, when you meditate in your heart on your bed and be still, all things of slowing you down, all things of letting some of that energy dissipate, mm. uh, not go away, but it spreads it out, right? Yeah. 
interesting, I think the Greek word for, for patience means to spread out wrath. So spread out your anger. Yeah. And it, it's like if, I love that. If, if anger was a, a, an edge like on a knife, uh, you want your knife sharp so that that edge cuts. To spread out wrath is to keep it from cutting, if you will. Uh, keep it from doing damage that it doesn't need to do. Uh, allow it to dissipate its energy in a way that allows God to bring about vengeance and you to let go of it, essentially. So in the Psalm, he says, uh, when you do this, you'll, God will provide for you gladness in your heart, better than the best food and wine on the planet. He's better than the best. Yeah. He's gonna give me joy, put gladness in my heart. The last verse in the Psalm says something like, and you will be able to both lie down and sleep in peace. Lie down. A lot of times we lie down and don't sleep or we go to sleep to avoid things, right? Sleep too much, yeah. form a depression and no peace. So you will both lie down and sleep in peace. If what? If you manage anger and fear in this way. Well, what is, what is, what's his suggestion? Doing all these counterintuitive things. Meditate in your heart, on your bed, and be still. I have two daughters, both adults, both married, both have grandkids of ours. The youngest grandkid's 14, so that'll give you kind of an age thing. And I've snowshoed with them in the mountains. Uh, one daughter on each side going up a hill. And uh, they're talking about growing up in our family. Hmm. And I'm in between listening to this and I'm thinking, I don't even remember this. <laughs> now, this is a family. And right now we're in the process of, of actually processing some stuff that happened in their childhood mm -hmm. that I was ignorant of at the time. Uh, and so is Nancy and, and we're trying to catch up with them and we're trying to figure out how to do this redemptively and it's tough sledding because it's so difficult uh, even to bring some of that stuff to the light, you know, and this, once again, it, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says, there are some things so difficult you can't even say them almost, can't even verbalize them, but they still need to be exposed is the word he uses mm. to the light so that we can process them, so that we can get them in the right order, so that we can put them where they belong, so that we can detoxify them, so they don't keep having this uh, expansive impact and, they, and, and it stops coloring our whole life, right? Well, that's feedback. I'm, I'm getting feedback at my age from my kids based on what happened to them when they were developing it as youngsters. Uh, things I was ignorant of, unaware of, didn't know. I'm looking back now and I want to be redemptive with the history without uh, being at its mercy. Okay, so, so talk about that because again, I think what our conversations are going to do is help build a bridge in generational conversations. Hopefully. You know, so how do you as the parent ready yourself to engage in those redemptive conversations, knowing that it's gonna come with maybe some scathing, painful, or honest feedback regarding how you 
raised your children, which as a parent, like, I mean, you throw yourself into parenting and you give it your all and it can be extremely discouraging and even <laughs> painful to find out you messed up. So how do you as a parent lean into that? Today, I keep running into people whose kids are kind of off the rails. They're not in church anymore. They don't, they don't care about following God. They've deconstructed their faith. They're, they're acting out sexually in some way, LGBTQ things. Uh, grievous stuff for parents to yeah. deal with. I think you have to stay in the same position that God stays with us. How can I keep inviting that child into this space? Uh, keep my hands open, not defend myself. Hmm. One of the hardest things at this point is uh, applying forgiveness, I guess would be the way to say it. How do I forgive me, hmm. if you will, and my short-sightedness or limitations, et cetera, so that I can put my arms down and not have to defend myself. Mm. And I would argue that uh, neurobiologically, it really is helpful to learn to just take your hands and literally put them down mm. because it changes the way your brain functions. If I put them down, I'm less defensive. And then a couple other things. If I could put my shoulders back down mm. and lift my head, lift my chin, uh, that is a non-defensive position as opposed to lowering my head, punching yeah. my shoulders and putting my hands up. This is a defensive position. So physiologically, I need I've to... Always, I've read an article recently that said the raised shoulders is a sign of insecurity. It's not only that, it almost always comes... Anybody that's been abused yeah. has that. When they start talking about the abuse, that, that's what comes. And it's neurobiologically, there's a reason for it. It's a defense, it's a guardian role, it's a way to protect yourself. You need to survive. If you're being abused, you, that's what happens. You, mm. you wanna survive that. Uh, but if you're gonna thrive and you're gonna heal from that and you're gonna grow, then you've gotta have some knowledge of what this takes. Well, so we're, what, do, what do I do as a parent? I need to put my hands down. Yeah. So I'm not defensive about this. On the side of the child, you know, what are your thoughts? I think every child needs two things. Really ask two questions. Am I loved? And I think a lot of times parents think they're loving their kids, but they're not connecting with them in a way that the kid can receive it. The second piece, which is oftentimes withheld from people, is not only am I loved, but what can I get away with? <laughs> Okay, so the second question, what can I get away with, it seems like to me, is one of limitation again. We're, now we're gonna confront the fact that you can't do that, sorry. You can't go out in the street. The car will run over you, you will be dead. I'm gonna prevent you from doing that. You wanna throw a tantrum, sorry. And, and a lot of times, especially in our culture today, uh, we are afraid to set boundaries. We are afraid to set limits. We are afraid to say no. Uh, no is actually a freedom word biblically, uh, but we don't talk about it that way. You know, uh, I said no to my daughter one time, and she was she said I I just hate you or something like that, and I thought well that's pretty strong because she wanted to go to a party and it wasn't chaperone, and I said she couldn't go, and she said I didn't trust her, and I said absolutely I trust you, I just don't trust the other people, and so we had this long discussion, and then she said I hate you, Dad, stomped off down the hall. She comes back the next morning, and I still remember this, just like it was happened yesterday. And she walks up to me without saying a word. This is 
at breakfast almost, and she puts her head right here by my, and gives me a hug, and she says, thank you for not making me go. I'm going, who is this person? Last night she was saying, I hate you for keeping me from doing, for saying no. Yeah. And this morning I'm saying, thank you so much for not, make, not making me go. And I thought, what happened to you, kid? You know, just you move from here to here. Mm. Well, it's that boundary. And it's kind of what God says to us. He says, you're, you're not God. You don't need to be God. Uh, you chose to believe you could be, but you know, that's the mistake. Uh, I'm here still wanting you to know that I love you and I created you for to be in relationship with me. Let's do this together, come on. Mm. But I think we keep wanting to earn it or please him or be right or win, mm. which is going the wrong direction. <laughs>